Welcome to Always in Pursuit Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Burke. We love to tell people stories, unpacking their obstacles, struggles, and even their trauma. We've found that by doing so, we can understand the foundation they've built success upon. This translates into value to our audience and gives you relatable content that can help you in your pursuits. We count on our audience to help promote AIP and to also give feedback about what you want to hear and who you want to hear it from. So please continue to share and give us a rating and a comment on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you and remain always in pursuit. All right. Hey, welcome everybody to always in pursuit podcast with Mike Burke. Um, so this is uh, this episode that I'm pretty excited about. And I was actually telling Mark before the episode that I was kind of nervous because there's a lot of things that speak to me in life, but it's not very often that a book speaks to me. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that it's one that will go on my bookshelf. I have five books on my bookshelf and I've already kind of told Mark about this and his book has been added to that. And that means that it's going to sit by my desk in my office. I'm going to refer to it often, not only for my own personal kind of endeavors, my professional endeavors, but then also when I have different conversations and mentorship opportunities with people, it's going to be a book that I'm going to refer to. So I'm pretty excited about this episode because uh, his, his book that you know I stumbled upon uh, through a mutual friend um, really has has impacted me a lot. And you know, there's a lot of things that are a correlation with not only the times that we're going through, but then also uh, my some of my own personal endeavors. So Mark Jacobson is an Air Force pilot. He's a professor uh, professor of strategy and innovation. He holds a PhD uh, in political science from Stanford. It's kind of a big deal in case you didn't know. And then also he's a writer of uh, fiction and nonfiction. He wrote The Lords of Harambe and also the book that I referenced a minute ago, Eating Glass. And we will definitely be diving into this uh, throughout the episode. Uh, he's done some amazing work uh, with uh, drones and everything else, and we will talk about that throughout the episode because it is a lot of the premise and the foundation uh, for the for the entire book itself. So, Mark, it is amazing to have you on Always in Pursuit podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I love what you're doing with the podcast, and I've really enjoyed uh, our conversations leading up to this. You pretty much hit my key, my key points of my career. Um, I've had a very eclectic career, C-17 pilot originally, but I've basically made a career out of wandering off the reservation doing side projects. I learned Arabic at DLI, Defense Language Institute, earned a master's degree in Jordan for a couple of years as an Olmsted scholar, did a lot of software development projects on the side throughout my career, just trying to automate things, make things better around the unit. And then my entrepreneurial work really culminated in the creation of a nonprofit at the beginning of the Syrian civil war that was aimed at trying to break starvation sieges using drones. And that was the hardest and biggest thing I've ever done in my life. Took a couple years of almost full-time work on top of my military career. And uh, it was ultimately the failure of that project that led me to write this book, Eating Glass, The Inner Journey Through Failure and Renewal about failure and its aftermath and about how we grow through that. Um, after that, I went to the Defense Innovation Unit in Silicon Valley, 
DOD organization aimed at bringing innovation into DOD, where I kind of had a second chance with a drone startup. I founded and led a uh, small UAS, counter UAS team called Rogue Squadron uh, that was extremely successful. We, within two years, were providing support to a huge swath of the federal government, both inside DOD and inside other federal agencies. Uh, very proud of that work. It was exhilarating. I was able to leverage a lot of those lessons from my nonprofit into this new startup uh, and had a great ride there. That ultimately ended in a way I would not have preferred also. So I had kind of a second round of going through all this. Um, but now I'm, as you mentioned, a professor at the Air Force's School of Advanced Air and Space Studies, or SAS, which is a, uh, a mid-career program for select field grade officers to train them in strategy. So it's a great place to be and to have some time to kind of sit and think and write and mentor and, and put all these lessons to work. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes it can, it can be a blessing and a curse to have that time, though, on your hand to reflect. <laughs> yeah, that's something we could talk about. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in my own head, maybe too much. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, you, you were mentioning before we started the show, gosh, we just had a couple months to sit down with no commitments and work. And, and that's how I thought it would be. And suddenly with all this time, I'm, I'm a little bit flailing sometimes, trying to be a good steward of that. Um, I think people like us thrive on having a mission in front of us. And the loss of that mission actually can be kind of one of the harder parts of going through a failure. You know, it's funny you said that. I had a, I had a past mentor uh, for some side stuff that I was doing a long time ago. And uh, one of our mutual contacts was planning on getting out of the Army. And uh, he was going to get out of the Army. And his plan was, he's like, well, now that I'm getting out, I'll have all this free time. Um, and I'll really be able to commit myself to you know, building other things and being an entrepreneur. And I remember a mentor at the time said, well, you need to probably tell him that's a terrible idea because he won't do anything. He won't get anything done. One, because of procrastination, but also just people that are high functioning, people that are, you know, want to get things done, they actually operate better when they have all these other kind of conflicting requirements um, because you just have to manage your time uh, so well in order to kind of be able to do that, that you make the most of it and you're extremely efficient with it. So, but, you know, so coming back, you know, just a little bit, I, I, we're definitely going to dive into a lot of the, you know, the drone stuff, because like I said, it's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a premise behind, uh, you know, the book Eating Glass. But what, you know, why did you want to become a pilot? What motivated you to become a pilot? Was that something you always wanted to do? Or, you know, how did you find yourself doing that? Yeah, there were a few things. When I was a kid, my dad was a private pilot. So some of my earliest memories were flying with him when I was maybe four years old. So I got that bug early. But as I got towards high school, this was 1990s period of you know the peace dividend and the US, a lot of our military operations overseas were more in the realm of humanitarian operations. And I had a strong interest in trying to do something good in the world and mm. believed early on in the ability of force to be used for good purposes, um, bringing security to places. And so early on, I also grew up near McCord uh, Air Force Base at the time. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So you yeah. grew up in Washington State. Okay. I did. I'm from Seattle and my dad's best friend ended up being the ops group commander down at McCord. So I kind of grew up around the air mobility world just a little bit. And I, from the time I got into high school, saw being a mobility pilot as a way to travel the world, get to know the world, do humanitarian type operations and leverage that interest in flying. And that's more or less what happened. I went to the Air Force Academy after that. 
uh, and went to pilot training and tracked into C-17s, which was my first choice and ended up back at McCord. Oh, okay. All right. So definitely something that was kind of in the blood, in the, you know, family upbringing, you know, being a pilot. So, you know, you take the, the, the pilot portion of it in that background, you know, and you talk about it extensively in the book, but then we talk about uplift, you know, and you, you know, the Syrian crisis, the civil war that was going on over there and the food shortages and all the refugees that were displaced, you know, can you shed a little light for everybody kind of listening, how those two things kind of intersected with the drones and what, you know, you talk about in the book where lightning struck and you had, you know, your once in a lifetime kind of great idea, which I don't believe is the only idea you will ever have. But at that time, you know, it was a pretty pivotal idea and it was an amazing thing. Yeah. So we, we kind of talked about the formal career, Air Force Academy pilot. I had this whole, this whole other side of my life, though, where from the time I was a kid, I was doing technology and innovation kind of stuff. I, I grew up with a very fortunate home life for this. My dad was a tinkerer and built robots for fun, and we built robots together. And I got that bug early as well. He owned a hobby store I worked in, so I was selling radio control cars and planes throughout high school. Once I got onto active duty, I spent a lot of time, as I mentioned, developing software. And some of my biggest successes, I think, that I contributed in my younger younger years were software projects. And I, and then, as we mentioned, I learned Arabic and lived in the Middle East right up right. until the beginning of the Syrian civil war. I was in Jordan when the Arab Spring started. So I had front row seats to that. And I'd written a thesis on the Syrian war. And I had dreamed my entire life of being an entrepreneur. I had read the books on Silicon Valley, the biographies of Steve Jobs and others. And was always trying to figure out how, how do I do this? How in my military career will there ever be an opportunity to try my hand at this? And I dabbled a lot with other software projects that never went anywhere and businesses on the side that never went anywhere. But then when I was a student at SAS in 2013-14, I was writing this thesis on Syria. I actually traveled to Eastern Turkey to do research on the war. And the war was a couple years old at this point. And I was meeting Syrian refugees. I was meeting rebel commanders, nonprofit leaders, and it was an absolute cataclysm in the country. And, you know, a lot of us look at Syria now through the lens of the Islamic State. And, and this was before that. And right. it's easy to forget that. This was a very different war. It, it was initially a nonviolent uprising met with a ton of brutality by the regime that morphed into defensive armament and then outright civil war. And in this early phase, the Syrian regime was basically just crushing whole cities where rebel activity was happening. And they started implementing these starvation sieges where they would besiege an area and try and break the population's will. And as a mobility guy, particularly one who was studying strategy at SAS, I was steeped in the Berlin airlift and opportunities to really leverage American power in unconventional ways. And this was a war that we wanted no part of. We, we were not about to fly in and take down the air defense system. We didn't want to be involved kinetically, which could escalate and suck us into another quagmire. And I thought, well, what if you could get an airlift into these besieged areas? Nonviolence doesn't escalate the same way that violence does. Right. It's a very asymmetric way of kind of pushing back against the worst brutality. So the question then is, how do, you, how do you get aid in? And you can't get big cargo planes in into a war zone like this. And my key insight as I was in Turkey doing this research was, what if you used a whole bunch of small drones? 
I use the metaphor of an army of ants moving a picnic lunch. Everyone carries a little bit. And I didn't know much about drones, but I had all the right technical background to, to do the research. And I thought I did some very cursory research over the next few days. And I said, this, this will be very hard, but it's possible. And that vision of just an air bridge into one of these besieged areas was the light bulb coming on for me. And I felt like the skies opened and a ray of light came down on me and said, you are chosen <laughs> for this because That's I was amazing. a normal I was an air mobility pilot. I flew C-17s. My job was getting cargo into dangerous places. I spoke Arabic, Syrian Arabic, which is the same as Jordanian Arabic. I'd even learned some Turkish from my research. I'd grown up building robots, flying radio controlled planes. I was at SAS as a strategist, and I was plugged into all the right communities from technology and innovation to strategy to the embassy and attache communities. I thought, you know, I'm just a major. This is Major should not be doing something of this scale, but who who else could try this but me? That was what yeah. I felt in that. And I was terrified of it. The, the, the sense of responsibility for what I was about to try and embark on was overwhelming. But I just felt a very calm, quiet confidence that, that I, I'm in a position to try this and I should. And that set me on this about year and a half process of building that vision into a nonprofit that within a year we were building and flying drones, flying over a hundred kilometers, dropping packages. Um, so very difficult project, an immense amount of learning with an immense amount of failure on the way. But I had spent all those years reading the literature and the books and the biographies on how to do this and, and was doing my absolute best to put into practice what I had learned. If I can't, or if I can, I must, is something that was actually said to me uh, a couple weeks ago by uh, some other individuals that we actually had on a podcast. And they were talking about, you know, expertise, you know, the advantage that they have because of resources and everything else, but then also timing. And I also think, uh, you know, a portion of that as well is, is that preparedness meet an opportunity. You know, you were prepared for this. Like you said, you know, you'd kind of, you know, I don't mean to be cheesy, but you prepared your whole life for this. Exactly. And, you know, and now you saw this, you know, and you talked, you know, just in the book, but if you can, maybe just a little bit of how dire this situation is, you know, you got the opportunity to sit down with some of the refugees and have conversations with them, um, you know, and how just terrible their situation was, you know, can you kind of help? Cause a lot of people just, there was a lot going on in those times. Um, yep. and depending on what you were paying attention to, um, would you know would what your knowledge would be and i don't think necessarily everybody understands how how terrible of a situation that was for the people that were displaced because of the war and the the uh, sieges and everything else yeah and i think that's probably especially true for a, a predominantly military audience whose experience of syria may be fighting the islamic state right uh, that's true. and and getting a very different side of this after the war had really changed um, so, you know, I think to really go back, you got to understand what this culture was like before war. Um, I had not actually been to Syria. I had a trip planned and there was visa issues and I didn't make it, but very similar to Jordan. And, you know, this is a very family oriented culture of people who just love hanging out with their relatives and kids and, and doing family things. It's, it's in many ways, a very beautiful culture. And there's an element there of things that I think we, we have lost in our own country and don't even recognize, uh, the yeah. value that comes with being part of a tribe and a community. So, um, 
when the war started, there it was a time of such optimism with the Arab Spring that finally, after these decades of autocratic rule, there is an opening for democracy and human rights and things that there was a real aspiration for, only to see this become a nightmare that you know protests are met with live ammunition, the sieges start, artil- artillery shelling became a favored technique. If you can actually you know log into Google Earth, I don't know if it still looks like this, probably look at Aleppo and Western Aleppo, which was held by the regime, looks more or less like a normal city. Eastern Aleppo is just rubble. You can see the dividing line. And so to, to see this kind of just descent into a civil war that you never thought could happen to you just absolutely traumatized our Syrian friends. And then you enter these sieges. Um, and it's, you know, it's really hard to know ground truth in a conflict zone like this. You're, you're in a hall of mirrors trying to parse together anecdotes from different people. But, you know, we met a woman who uh, had uh, suffered a chemical attack, but also been through a starvation siege. And she said the siege was worse, you know, no, watching her children not have enough to eat, mm. not, and just that feeling of helplessness. Um, there was a number of humanitarian reports about children you know, foraging for plants and weeds and being shot by snipers. So you get all this anecdotal evidence that comes out. The regime was also very deliberately targeting hospitals and doctors with airstrikes and other attacks. So medical deprivation became a, a favored weapon as well. So it, it was pretty bad. And you're not going to end a war like this overnight, but to be able to do some good around the margins and give people an opportunity to participate in a project that could bring some healing back into the country was a big part of what motivated me. And we envisioned this being something that refugees in Turkey could sort of assist with, where instead of sitting around a camp helpless, you actually are, you know, maybe making parachutes or loading boxes and and just doing something to to push back against this kind of monstrous force of war. Yeah. So as you as you start to develop this, you know, and you get people that are investors into the program, um, you know, you're building drones, you're having the successes, you're having the failures as you kind of go through that. You're bringing some people on board that are helping you kind of in this pursuit. And I think it's a good segue a segue into talking about the helplessness, you know, which yeah. I think we can immediately pivot on to uh, when we talk about the failure. You know, so if, if we can, I'm going to read something real quick uh, from the introduction, actually. Yeah. Um, so we you you open up with like one of the biggest points, um, you know, in the introduction, but I'm, I'm going to read this real quick and then I'm just going to, I'm going to say something. I'm going to have you kind of talk about it, but uh, basically, you know, you, you're trying to do, you know, final test flights before a larger demonstration that you got to do where you can get more funding, more sponsors, and then also get, you know, approval to actually start what you want to start doing in Syria. Um, so and I want to clarify before you read, um, yeah. Everything we did to this point is in the United States. We have not yeah. actually gone to the Middle East. We have built the technology and tried to prove it at yep. Stanford in California. And now we're preparing to try and go to Turkey and do it there. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. The, good. I'm glad you clarified that. Thank you. So, all right. So I'm reading from the book, Eating Glass. I've never felt so helpless in my life. All we can do is watch Stanford bird. My heart leaps as the sound of sirens, but it is just a police car. The officer puts his hands on his hip and watches the fire. The flames lap at the perimeter road now. Branches overhanging the lake bed ignite. In minutes, the fire will escape the perimeter. 
So basically, right after this drone takes off, it immediately careens to the right, crashes, and you know, starts the entire place on fire. And you say, you know, you open it up. I was always worried about the fire. But then also, you know, later in the book, um, you know, one of the statements that you made was helplessness might be the most stressful human emotion, you know, knowing that you can, there's literally nothing you can do. And you have this drone that you don't know yet, but you just believe is completely destroyed. But then also you have this fire that's escaping the perimeter, moving towards, you know, Stanford, as you, as you say, you know, and you're just seeing everything that you've been working on, you've been diving into for so long, you know, with, you know, blood, sweat and equity and everything else just go up in flames and there's nothing you can do about it, you know, and, and, and talk about that. You know, what did that feel like? And you, you, you outline it great in the book, but I, I want, I want people to understand, you know, the emotion behind that. And I will tell you when I read it, I could feel the emotion and I could feel that just absolute terrible feeling in your stomach where there's nothing you can do. And you're washing something that you're just, absolutely invested in and passionate about go up in flames literally yeah um so the crashing the drone at stanford and starting the wildfire was one of the worst days of my life but it was sort of a culmination of a lot of things so you know from the day we started this it was just hundreds of small failures innumerable crashes parts don't work don't fit things are breaking not getting money, donors turning us down. Like every day it was new battles. And I, as someone steeped in the books on resilience and bouncing back and failing forward, you know, I, I did my best to take it in stride and, and thought I was doing everything right. But over the months, I was getting more and more and more worn down. Um, I was often literally working alone, very painstakingly building a team one person at a time. And a few months before that fire, we finally hit the kind of the pinnacle of our success with this major demonstration. BBC filmed it. It was maybe the best day of my life um, of just everything I'd worked for crystallizing in this perfect day. And then the wheels started to come off as, as things started unraveling. Our fundraising didn't go the way we wanted. We were badly burned out. My lead engineer needed to back off because he was burned out. Um, I was having a harder and harder time managing. I got to the point I couldn't even check my email. It was so just emotionally and mentally draining. My my deputy would kind of tell me like three things each day that I needed to do. And that was about all I could handle. Um, we ran a crowdfunding campaign because we had this one chance to ride a media wave when the BBC story came out. And I was very nervous about crowdfunding because we were going all in. We were we were boldly gambling on raising crowdfunded donor money for something that might or might not happen that summer of trying right. to recreate this demo in Turkey. So I was, that was the, probably the biggest source of my stress was, is this ethical? Is it right? Um, should we be being this bold? How aggressive should we be pushing? And then about a month after that campaign closed, we crashed this drone and burned down three acres of Stanford. And it was just the latest of many setbacks, but it was by far the most visceral and one that I knew would have lasting consequences. So I had no idea what we were going to do. I, I kind of felt like in that moment that we were done, there was no future here. 
but we had all the money in our bank account. We hadn't spent any of it yet. We still had a whole lot of people rooting for us, had put their faith in us, put their money in us. We were still trying to, you know, pull a success out of failure. Um, the summer was only half over and we had this kind of summer window to try and get to Turkey uh, to do this demo before the school year started again. So the, the fail forward part of me said, well, I should be getting back in the saddle, you know, things happen. But I, I was just absolutely uh, at the end of my strength at this point. And so was a lot of my team. So you talk about writing a book about failure and you talked about it in the, um, in the book a little bit you know, about the decision to publish this, but then also, you know, in the conversations that you and I have had is, is that, you know, going with a publisher, getting somebody that would actually take this book and market it for you. Uh, there wasn't a lot of good feedback on writing a book about failure and people actually wanting to pick that up. You know, one of the things that you say in the book is, is openly sharing our inner struggles violates a tab, a taboo and a fine line separates on authenticity authenticity, sorry, authenticity and oversharing. So what motivated you to kind of write this, especially um, the, the, the first part of it? And we'll talk about the kind of the last half of it and how I kind of, how I kind of viewed that. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But what, what, what motivated you to do this? Yeah. So in the ensuing weeks after the fire, I basically broke down and was sort of barely functional and I was still accountable to complete a PhD in three years that is normally supposed to take six years. So I had that pressure on me. I had a lot of people angry at me at this point. Um, so I still had all the stuff I needed to go do in life, not to mention taking care of my wife and my three kids and, and just, you know, being a husband and father. And, um, so I was trying to just keep moving forward, but found it very difficult to do much of anything. And, this gets at a key definition in the book when we talk about failure. Most people hear the word failure and think about just a missed success. And what I came to understand was failure was a lot deeper than that. It was being taken past the limit of your capacities where you can no longer function properly, uh, almost like mater material failure. And, and that's where I found myself of like not being able to do schoolwork, not being able to just do basic things that I should be able to do. And I needed to find some way to get moving again. And, and what I discovered was that by writing, that was maybe one of the most helpful and cathartic things I could do for myself was to just get out everything that I was feeling and experiencing. So at first I just wrote this for myself. Uh, but it didn't take very long. I think that that introduction chapter you read from, I think I sat down and wrote that entire introduction in one sitting. And after I did, I looked at it and I thought, this, this actually is not bad. And uh, I showed it to a couple of friends who said, you should turn this into a book. So I started thinking about that, but I, I just kind of picked at it over the next few years. Here and there, I would just add sections, usually based on something I was feeling or experiencing. In the last year during COVID lockdown, I had a lot of time this was after my involvement at DIU came to an end. I was sort of between assignments. I really started thinking about this seriously and I really agonized. You mentioned the taboo about sharing about failure, uh, the fear that, you know, if I write about this, am I just oversharing something that I should have kept to myself? Mm. But what I realized as I was trying to figure out how to get moving again, 
the single most important and powerful thing I had to offer the world was my story. Like I had no sense of direction other than that. My entrepreneurial activities had come to an end. My time at DIU came to an end. My drone work came to an end. I saw no way to get moving again, but I had this story and this experience that no one else was talking about. We, we were in a time of, uh, toxic positivity, uh, the phrase sometimes <laughs> hear about where I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Where, um, we have this, this idea of toxic positivity where you're expected to sort of always be happy or bouncing back or vibrant. Um, and that actually really bothers me sometimes. There's a place for that, but we often gloss over the reality of things and are sort of left feeling like what's wrong with me that I'm not happy all the time. So I, what I did in this book is I really laid it out there. Like when you go through an epic failure that derails your life for two years, here's some of the steps along the way uh, that we don't talk about. The silent aftermath, you know, after you've closed the doors, everyone stops talking about your thing that you were doing and you, mm. it's all you want to talk about and think about and no one talks about it anymore. They don't care. You know, like that's not something we talk about. I've never encountered that anywhere. Um, uh, I have this idea I call aftershocks in the book that, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get moving again and do some new thing. And then almost immediately, some little trigger comes along that pokes at me and I just fall apart again. Why is that? Well, I'm not, I'm not healthy yet. I'm still recovering. I've got some wounds and no one has talked about that. So I ultimately decided that rather than censor my story and play it safe, I should tell it because I know that I'm not the only one who goes through experiences like this. You, if you read between the lines, you see these types of experiences are endemic among entrepreneurs. Um, the rate of uh, mental health issues, depression, bipolar, very high. And I think it's also a factor for anyone going through a midlife transition where everything they've built and known is sort of coming to a close. And now they're facing this unknown future. There's so many different ways this can happen. A divorce, um, you just have some professional mistake. Um, you know, they all activate, they're very different, but they also activate very similar processes in our life. So I decided to write this and to your point, sent it out to a bunch of agents, got no replies. Um, it's a very difficult marketing proposition to try and get people to read a book about failure. Even I've sent it to some people who I'm like, Oh, you just had a failure. You should read my book. And I think they're kind of like, why are you sending me a book about failure, bro? Like I didn't fail. <laughs> um, but but I do think it's important and, I, and the people who have read it and engaged with it and really done the inner work to kind of face maybe what they want to run from have all, I think have all found it a very rich and rewarding process. So, um, so that's why I wrote it. It was, it was an, a very terrifying act to put it out there, but I think I've been validated in doing that, that this meets a need that no one else is really talking about in the same way. Real quick, before we go on, I want to talk to you about our sponsor, Adaton, and the company's founders, James and JJ. They built their core software product, Muster, based on their experience in the military. As tech industry leaders, and with input from hundreds of early adopters and testers across all levels of the military and multiple commercial sectors, Muster is a mobile-first accountability software system that make wide-scale accountability, information dissemination, and data collection fast, easy, and secure. 
You can learn more, connect to the Adaton team, and see how others have started up free, no-risk market research trials of Muster at the website getmuster.app backslash AIP. That's getmuster, M-U-S-T-R dot A-P-P backslash AIP. Head to the site and punch in your email to get in touch with James, JJ, and the team. And tell them Mike Berg sent you. That's getmuster.app backslash AIP. Well, and I think it's it's something that is very hard to find nowadays is writing something that other people are not talking about. Everybody's talking about leadership. Everybody's talking about success. Everybody's talking about like you, you, you know, you discuss the positive mentality. Uh, it's all perpetuated by everything on social media where people show the best of themselves and not the worst of themselves. Um, but no one's talking about failure. But I think, you know, there's some other things that, you know, are kind of interlaced in the book that can, that can help people. Maybe people haven't had like a catastrophic life-changing failure in their life. Um, not everybody has, yeah. um, you know, they might have small little incremental things, but where you've had, you know, a failure where it's changed your life, it's changed the trajectory of your life, be it professionally, personally, or whatever it might be. Not everybody's uh, been through that, but that doesn't mean you can't get something out of this book because, you know, an important part of it is, is, um, identifying an opportunity and a gap that needs to be filled. I think we've just highlighted too in your situation, you know, the the drone, while that you never that actually never resulted in there being drone do- food deliveries uh to the Syrian refugees, the drone work you did propelled a lot of other uh drone work across the globe. Um but then also this book itself. Yeah. It's all part of it's all part of this and you you found something that people are not talking about, a gap that I think is very very important because I like, I like your demonstration of aftershocks and I talked about it, you know, in always in pursuit in a little bit of a different way, but I had all these failures, all this trauma, all these things that I'd went through and I never dealt with them in my life. And when I finally did the turmoil, the upheaval it caused just absolutely flattened me where if maybe this book had existed earlier, see, so now. I'm mad at you because you should have read it a long time ago. No, I'm just kidding. Um, where if I'd have read about it, I would have said, hey, it's not good not to deal with this stuff and get it out, you know, because it will cause later later issues in life. Uh, I think that's really good. Yeah. And you hit on something important there that, you know, not everyone's been through a startup failure. And I try and hit this in the very first pages of a book, but there's just all of us have times we feel like we've lost our way. Yeah. And that's that's a big part of it too. I mean, those can come in, you know, fiery infernos, uh, but they can also come in very subtle ways where you just you kind of feel like you've just lost your your purpose and are trying to, you know, figure out where your life's headed and and I think both can evoke very similar processes and you know, the other thing I'll say is we've talked about kind of the failure half of the book, but this is also fundamentally an optimistic book about these times being our seasons of the greatest growth. And, you know, when you say people aren't talking about failure, they're not talking about it like this. We have a lot of trite sound bites about, oh yeah, you gotta, you know, grow through failure. And yep. um, there's no such thing as failure. There's just an opportunity to grow. I literally said that earlier this week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's, and it's true, right? Like we have all this, this 
you know, social media type wisdom for a reason. There's a grain of truth in it, but you have to really unpack that. And what I found was the growth did not come easy. And I'm sure you experienced something similar as you finally confronted your, yep. um, your past that we're talking about months and maybe years of deep work. That's very uncomfortable. There were many times where I just wanted to stop and I said, is this healthy for me? Maybe I should just go like start some new coding project, which is kind of like an anesthetic for my emotions and, you know, go build something and not face this. So it's very hard and difficult work, but it's been the most rewarding and, and maybe fruitful experience of my life. Uh, learning how to kind of reframe everything that happened and what I learned along the way. And, and people who've been through experiences like this usually will say the same thing. Yeah. I can't remember uh, who it was in, in your book, but you talked about it. One of your friends uh, saying that everybody's pain hurts, you know, it, and yeah. Well, and it just goes into exactly what we're talking about. It doesn't failure has many different levels, but it still sucks. Yeah. And this, that was a key chapter that's maybe worth mentioning. I felt a lot of guilt about how hard this hit me because I've had about the most privileged upbringing you could imagine. Um, I had every opportunity. I've, you know, people who look at me see someone who's very successful. I've been a pilot and a Stanford PhD. I've had a lot of needling about why a Stanford PhD is writing a book about failure. So I felt guilt over like, why am I such a mess when I was in the very heart of this? Um, in that conversation, I was talking with a friend who had dealt with far harder issues than I had and was recently recovering from the death of her mother. And I was asking her how she was doing and coping and, you know, she shared, and then she asked me how I'm doing and I'm like, well, let's not talk about me, but she, she was very gracious in giving me permission to be having a hard time that you can't play this comparison game. And I still wrestle with this, um, you know, talking to a, a military audience who've been on, you know, hard deployments and just been through some real stuff that I haven't had to deal with. You know, it's very easy. Anytime you walk in a new context to, maybe compare our situation to others and, and just try and brush off whatever we're going through because someone's always got it worse. Yeah. But we can't do that. No, we can't. You know, and I, I had a dear friend of, of mine that was uh, episode seven, Matt Nyman, uh, you know, on the podcast. And, you know, he was an amputee, uh, you know, lost, a, lost one of his legs on a helicopter crash overseas. And we were, I basically was saying the same thing, like, well, I've been through things, but I can't compare them uh, to what you've been through and the trauma that you've been through. Um, he literally stopped me in the middle of the episode and says, don't do that. That's not fair. That's not fair to me. That's not fair to you. Trauma is trauma. You know, um, it it affects us and we all have to deal with it. It doesn't matter the level, you know, um, so to speak, we all have to deal with it. Well, you brought it up and I, I wasn't going to bring it up because I knew that it would lead us down a, uh, another, another line of, of conversation, but I can't help it now because you brought it up. You know, you wrote an article and this is what actually started uh, me reaching out to you. Uh, you published, uh, it was published in the, from the green notebook and talking about losing your why and not having a why. And that's a buzzword that everybody knows right now. Simon Sinek's, you know, start with why, um, all the speeches he gives, uh, many, many, um, leaders in and out of the military refer to the book, why, um, and understanding and knowing your soldiers, why, uh, it's definitely a buzzword, but you wrote something, you know, I guess true to your form <laughs> yep. a little bit about not having a why and that's okay. Yeah. So 
the genesis of that was listening to Joe Byerly's From the Green Notebook podcast, where him and his co-host would always ask guests at the end of each episode, so yeah. tell me your why. And it's a great question. I love it. It's fascinating answers, but it got me thinking, how would I answer? And I didn't actually know. I'm in this sort of in-between season. Um, I, I love my professor job, my teaching, my students, but um, I, I am also in a little bit of an interlude where I, I'm not focusing all my surplus energy on a project. And and I just like to go where people don't, right? That's that's what I do. And in today's age, we're all expected to have a mission statement and a why that we put on our Twitter handle. And and again, I really wrestle with that whole thing because it just mainly provokes anxiety about why I don't have it all together. But I think most of us feel that way. If you look at the sheer appetite for books and ideas about purpose and meaning and finding your why, it's huge. I think we're all looking to do that more. So I said, well, I'm going to be honest. I don't know my why right now. I, I have an immediate why of, you know, helping my students succeed and grow. Um, I love doing that work, but I'm still trying to figure a lot of things out, especially as I'm in kind of the terminal phase of my military career, most likely um, looking at a transition. I do not know what I'll do next. So what I said in the article is number one, this is okay. Like let's legitimize this, that we don't always have to know exactly where we're going on a 10 year life plan a lot of times life is messy and complicated and just taking care of our immediate needs and our loved ones and doing the work on our desk today is enough. And two, like, how can we kind of reframe this? We all have seasons when we're like in execution, like this year we are preparing and training and we're going to do this, this thing, this mission, we're all in on it. But we've also got these in between seasons where it's kind of a reset time. And that can be an opportunity to explore. I've spent a lot of the last year trying different things. I've written some short stories. I've tried working on a couple different books, more academic uh, books, journal articles. I've built a website and, you know, I'm still trying to figure out which of those will take off. I've learned a lot of things that don't work for me. So I think that's okay. Like it, in the entrepreneurship literature, you, you find this idea of having like convergent thinking and divergent thinking. Divergent thinking is where you just, you mess around, you try things, you experiment, you form hypotheses, hypotheses. And then in a convergent season, you really land on the thing you're going to do and you go execute. So I think we can view life the same way that we have divergent seasons of trying to figure things out and grow. And that's where a lot of the growth occurs as we kind of take stock of our lives and reset. And that's a good thing. We can focus on our relationships around us. And, and I know I'm, I have no doubt that sooner or later, some new thing will land, as you mentioned, preparation, meeting opportunity, and I'll be off in execution again. But in the meantime, I'm trying to rest here. And, and that can be a challenge for those of us who like to go hundred miles an hour. Yeah. It's got its, its blessings too. Yeah, no, it is. Well, and I hope part of the the next big thing will in, include a book tour where you go around and you scream this the name of this book from the, the highest rooftops and talk about it and talk about your personal journey. I think there's also, you know, another thing that, you know, we can talk about because, you, you know, and you're very transparent in the book, which is just something that I absolutely appreciated, you know, your failure and kind of managing it all, you know, so, you know, struggling to kind of manage it all. Uh, you know, going through your PhD, trying to get this, manage a family, you know, so interlacing in that, you know, what would you also tell people that are trying to pursue projects, you know, outside of their regular nine to five? 
be it in the military or outside the military? Yeah, I, it's a big question. It is. And one we have to handle with care because that ambition and that passion to, to go the extra mile outside of the day job is really important. And that's how a lot of things change and happen and stuff gets done. And in that sense, like I don't regret and would not change the amount that I invested in this project um, or my other projects, but we have to be really careful and we have to be wise. And I think that's, I, I can share, you know, tactical lessons on this, but I think it's something we all have to kind of grow through ourselves um, and learn ourselves. But when you have a day job, you're on someone's payroll, you have expectations handed to you of what you're supposed to do. The institution is built around those jobs. It's built to reward those things. When you do a passion project on the side, you are fueled by your own love for that thing. And that can very easily set you up for a fall or even some kind of abuse where you keep giving out of love and it's not requited by the organization. Um, most of my side projects, the organization has not embraced in the way that I hoped it would, even though I was working in the organization's best interest. So you end up with a really high risk of burnout. And I have a chapter in the book on burnout where I describe burnout, not just as like running out of energy, but as about unrequited love. Um, and so you have to be really careful. And also if you're a leader in a project like this, you have to be very careful not to burn out your people because they are giving everything to you for this dream. And that was something I learned as well. Um, so you gotta be very careful. And I think the, the way you maybe try and balance that is you really have to practice self-care in every possible way. You get your sleep, you exercise, you draw boundaries and red lines around what you will and won't do, but you've got to stay healthy, keep your relationships healthy. It's really easy to let those things go in the midst of execution. And you don't notice the damage being done until it's too late. So I'm much more careful now about trying to stay healthy at the core of my life. Um, I think of a metaphor of like my home and my family being like my fortified castle and I'll go out and fight the battles and come back. But I, I am very selective and caref careful about what I give my energy to. And I think anybody who is pursuing passion projects should do the same the last thing I'll say is there's immense social pressure today to have a side hustle. I hate those words. Um, it can be a good thing. If you really have something you love, go do it. But I often feel like we're getting to this world where you're sort of expected to have something and that can become kind of toxic too. Uh, that now we're just feeling more and more pressure to work all the time. Um, mm -hmm. So just, just gonna be very wise about what you give your energy to. Yeah. I like how you talk about boundaries. I think you need to kind of prescribe time too, and understanding that it's a marathon, not a sprint, you know, that you're not going to solve. You're not going to get everything done in one day, especially if you're working all day long and then expect to solve all the world's problems. You got to manage kind of the expectations, uh, whatever you are working on, you know, outside of the regular nine to five, you got to kind of manage those expectations. Yeah. I think that question could be taken in a few ways. Um, I think one aspect of this is that if you're pursuing a passion project, you have a predisposition to be a true believer in that project. Yeah. That was certainly the case for me. And, you know, there's techniques and tricks to try and manage or mitigate that. One of the first things I did with my project was 
sat down and made a list of every possible thing I could think of that could go wrong. And we use that basically as a kind of a checklist to check ourselves against. So I was, I felt like we did that well, but there was a point where I was just so invested in the project. I lost all objectivity. So I think any leader uh, or anyone working on a project like this needs to be aware that uh, it's hard to be objective about your own project and same with your loved ones. The people who are cheering you on are not necessarily the best people to evaluate the merits of your project. Um, so, you know, again, ways to mitigate that you go seek outside advice, people who've taken some, some licks and have some scars who've done this kind of thing before. Um, there's, there's often this peak, this, um, this idea of you have like a, um, a peak of inflated expectations at the start of some new thing. And you hit this trough of disillusionment as it all falls apart. But then the real learning and growth comes on the slope of enlightenment. This idea comes from the uh, garter hype cycle, it's called. Um, so you've kind of got to go through that disillusionment period to really shake out the idea and start making authentic progress on it. Um, another way to take your question about leader biases is after you've been through a failure, the biases can run the other direction. And this is something I'd be careful about moving from the wreckage of my nonprofit to starting Rogue Squadron, another drone team. Uh, I was very, very sensitive to going too fast, to taking money, to taking big audacious risks. I was worried about my own leadership ability because, you know, towards the end of the nonprofit, I kind of lost faith in my own leadership ability for a time. So, you know, I, I have a chapter in the book called Scars, and I describe learning to live with your scars and kind of knowing the ways that they help you, but also the ways they can hurt you. And everybody you work with has their own scars. And that's the great thing about community and about relationships is you got to build a team where, you know, when, when one of my scars is acting up, hopefully someone on my team is there to kind of carry me along through that and I can do the same for them. And as long as we're all a little bit different, we can kind of compensate for each other's blind spots and biases. Um, so, you know, humility about your own strengths, weaknesses, but also community to help each other through those. Yeah, I think you. I think it's important that you find those people that will give you that kind of unfiltered feedback as well. You know, that are not necessarily tied to your passion because of relation or friend or whatever else. They're going to say, "Hey, this is this is really what you need to be thinking about, what you need to be looking at," because this is not going well. We kind of skipped over it. You know, we didn't really talk too much about Rogue Squadron, um, but you know, would you? You know, going back, I guess we're going back quite a bit, but, you know, talk about Road Squadron and what happened there and, and what that all entailed. Yeah. So when I had my nonprofit, I learned an awful lot about small drones. I flew pretty much every drone that the Islamic State owned because it was a very small market and you kind of knew the, what platforms were out there. So the Defense Innovation Unit brought me in after learning about my drone experience right at the height of the Battle of Mosul, where ISIS was very rapidly weaponizing a drone air force and dropping grenades on our troops and partner forces. So I started Rogue Squadron to be a, an insurgent red team where we could basically build a drone air force to go do all the things ISIS was doing. And we could help our troops prepare. We could anticipate where threats were going. We had a lot of deep knowledge about you know, where tactics would be going. The technology already existed. The, ta the tactics just hadn't been adopted yet. So we were trying to, you know, skate ahead of the puck, as we would say. 
and also help with our acquisitions instead of just, you know, watching some company give a PowerPoint presentation about their counter UAS product, we could take them out on a range and fly real drones against them. Uh, that evolved as we got going. Me and my co-founder, um, Navy Lieutenant Ryan Beal, both had a lot of engineering experience. We ended up developing a lot of custom software for SOF, all related to small drones. So we'd get requests directly from places like Syria and Iraq, and we could very quickly turn around custom software to, to give them capabilities. Um, so that we built a very, very effective team. I still think it was probably the best small UAS team in the federal government. And we were also working with allied nations. Um, very early on, one of our projects got noticed by the secretary of defense and he asked us to scale it across the force. We got real money. So unlike the nonprofit where we were volunteers, now I had the resources to build a real team on a payroll, uh, full-time build a proper lab and do things right. And I also now had all that wisdom about how to manage myself and my team to try and pace ourselves for a marathon. So, um, that work was great. Loved it. The team was very effective in its time. The challenge was government can't tolerate a good thing too long. So over time, the personnel system got its hooks in us. Uh, my, my deputy, Ryan, he was a helicopter pilot. He was probably the top small UAS drone engineer in the federal government. But because he was not flying helicopters anymore, he got passed over for promotion twice and was forcibly kicked out of the Navy. And I was forced to PCS. Um, that was basically a decapitation strike for our team. And we couldn't bring in replacement leadership. So we, uh, we merged the team into a different organization as a way to try and help it survive. And uh, we'll just say it's been through a lot of changes since then. It's no longer the team that I built. Um, so I'm, I'm happy about what we had, but it's, uh, I wish things could have turned out differently. Yeah. And I know you talk about it uh, pretty extensively, how it came to an end. Uh, very suddenly and unexpectedly and you know how frustrating was that and it made you question a lot of different things well we're already uh knocking on the door of an hour and we try to uh we try to keep everything to an hour mark you have any kind of direct question you want to ask me we talked about it a little bit already but i'd be curious if you have anything to add about how the book spoke to you i've told you in the past you and i have such different backgrounds we have very yeah. similar interests but different backgrounds i was intrigued that the book resonated with you as deeply as it did. And I'm very happy about that, but I'm just curious maybe what spoke to your unique experience, which I know you've shared in previous episodes. So there's two, there's two different things I would like to highlight about why this book spoke to me. The first one is, is, you know, as I try to pursue, you know, becoming an author, um, I've done a lot of little short stuff, you know, that's been published from the green notebook. And we're looking at a couple other places we're looking at contributing to as well. Uh, but also, you know, working on novels, you know, and, and being, you know, writing. So the conversation about you have a book with words on it that are wrote on a piece of paper. How do you connect with the reader? How do you encompass, you know, get them involved in the story where they feel the same emotions? They feel as if they're there. That is a very difficult thing to do. And I can speak for myself or in writing, when you try to enamor an audience like that, 
you can beat your head against the wall when you're trying to do it and trying to figure out the words that are going to actually do that. And I, you and I have spoke about this and you, you know, you've seen some of the other stuff that I'm working on. It's a very difficult thing to do. So first I was tied to your story. I felt your story. I felt the frustrations. I could, you know, when you drop to your knees and you're all angry and you're mad and you feel like you failed and you've let everybody down, I was there. You know, I was there with you. Okay. And while I've never ever experienced anything like that in some of the work you've did, um, there are similarities in my own life where I felt the same amount of frustration. So one, that is one reason that it just resonated with me so much. And, uh, you know, I applauded it and I looked up to it and I look up to you and your ability to do that. You're just sharing your own story, but there's plenty of people that have shared their own stories, uh, wrote books where they share their own story that have zero connection with their audience. It's just words on a piece of paper. The other part is, is because of the transparency and the vulnerability you display in the book. It is something that people are not doing. And it's something that needs to happen and it needs to happen more because as we talk about connection and we could talk about you know, senior leaders and their struggle for connection, we could also talk about COVID and how it separated us anymore. Social media and the echo chambers that exist within that, where you can confirmation, you know, you have all these confirmation biases where you maybe connect with people that are thinking the exact same, but you can't connect with somebody that might have completely different viewpoints and a completely different perspective. So you have all these kind of different things that are just pulling us as human beings away. And what I've talked about, and I've talked about it in multiple, multiple podcasts, multiple conversations. And as a leader in the army, I talk about how do you build connection? How do you jumpstart connection? And my view is through vulnerability and, trans- and transparency. Hey, here's the worst thing that I've ever had to do in my entire life. Here's a, you know, like you said, here's the worst day in my life. Wow. I can't believe you just told me that. And there's people that might look down on you upon that, but there's other people that are going to respect that and understand what you're trying to do. And it's not, you're not doing it in a way to be disingenuous or on, you know, not being authentic, sorry, uh, not being authentic. Uh, you're doing it in a way because you're trying to show them that, Hey, you're important to me. And I'm showing you how important you are or you are to me by telling you about the worst thing that I've ever had to go through. That way we can establish our connection um, and we can have a hard conversation, have the hard conversation, whatever it might be, um, you know, kind of through that. So for you to write a book about it and I, I, you know, the first part of the book, you kind of tell the story. And then the later part of the book, you know, which is broken up in segments, and it kind of, I kind of had to laugh. And most people have no idea what this book is, even. It's like a cult classic that exists in the Midwest and most people have never heard about. It's called uh, uh, The, the Incoherent, uh, Incoherent uh, Ramblings of a Bad Man by Joel uh, Waterman. My point is, is that it was a little bit of the other part of the book was The Ramblings of a Madman. And you're literally just talking about these different emotions structured, you know, around love and failure, you know, and, and renewal and all these different things. And you're just talking, your emotions are just there on the page, unfiltered for everybody to see. And you don't see that a lot. A lot of people are not doing that. Um, so that is why I think that more people need to read this book. And this book needs to make it out so that more people can see it and appreciate it. Because just like you said in the beginning of the episode, there's other people that are struggling. 
there's other people that are going through like situations and they need to know that somebody else made it through it and is on the backside of it. Um, and the process they went through so that it can help them map a process as they go through it. Um, because there's just so many different elements of failure and, and, and loss of faith and loss of why, and you know, just loss in general. Um, so I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to say it yet, but I'll say it right now that in two, I, every year I have one book that I say, is, this is the best book I've read this year in 2021 eating glass is the best book I've read this year so far, so far. So we'll see how the rest of the 2021 goes, but this is the best book I've read this year. And I'll, that what that means is that I will probably read it at least two or three more times this year. Um, and I will refer it to many, many people. And now I have the podcast platform. So now I can even amplify it even more. So it's pretty awesome. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. Um, I really appreciate that as a call to action to your listeners too, that being able to own your own story is a source of tremendous power. That's maybe the biggest thing I've learned since publishing the book. I was deeply afraid of releasing it and got to the point. It felt kind of like a make or break moment in my life that I just needed to do it to make my own peace with the story. And once I did and put it out there, that sense of validation of seeing the power of authenticity reflected back in other people made it all worth it. So for those of you who are, who have a story to tell, you've got to kind of do the work yourself to face your story, but being able to share it, it is scary at first, but once you take that step, it can become a great source of power as a, as an individual, as a leader in your family, your community. So it's, it's well worth the journey. Yeah, I agree. Well, I, Mark, I really, really do appreciate you. And I appreciate you coming on today and having this conversation and highlighting the book and writing the book and everything else. I, I can't say enough about this book and the work that you're doing and, you know, the article that you wrote for, uh, for the, from the green notebook, I'll make sure to include in the show notes. So if you would, you know, do you have any kind of closing thoughts, uh, comments, uh, for the audience and where can the audience also find you as well? I think I'll, I'll leave it with what I just said uh, about sharing your own story. But again, I really appreciate the invitation to be here. I really believe in what you're doing and I've loved listening to some of your previous episodes on these themes. Um, anyone who wants to go deeper on this, I encourage you to check out the book, Eating Glass, The Inner Journey Through Failure and Renewal. And I've got a website at markdjacobson.com. I do some blogging there. I've also got a mailing list you can sign up for uh, to keep up with what I'm writing. Yeah. Okay. Well, before I kind of sign us off here, I just want to say one more thing. Uh, We are, Mark has already agreed that the first five people that share this episode on whatever kind of social media platform they find it uh, when I post it, or if they find it themselves before the first five people that share it and also comment about why it meant so much to them and uh, why they appreciated the episode itself. uh, will get a copy of the book uh, eating glass uh, from Mark himself. So uh, we'll we'll include that in the show notes and I'll make sure to include the instructions uh, when this episode releases. So I appreciate you doing that, Mark. And uh, I hope that we can uh, help with uh, getting this book out to more people because it's a book that people need uh, in these times. And uh, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to being part of that process. So again, Mark, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing all your insights and sharing the book. Uh, This is Mike Burke with Always in Pursuit podcast, signing off.